morning is Psalm 94, verses 18 and 19. When I thought my foot is slipping, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sue. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we finish today this sermon series called Overwhelmed, and I admit that as we began the series, I was overwhelmed. Uh, we knew that we were onto something as we were talking about worry and depression and anxiety. We knew that it was going to resonate with many of you who see the effects of depression and anxiety in our culture and maybe most prominently in our affluent, fast-paced, high-performing culture here in the western suburbs. But I was feeling overwhelmed at the beginning of this because I had no idea how to end the plane, uh, to land the plane today, no idea how to end this sermon series. I didn't know how to end it in a hopeful way. And I, I think it's okay to admit that this series has not been a barrel of laughs for us. It's been tough and raw at times, and, and I was overwhelmed with the idea that we might walk away from today only being educated on these topics or, or that we might normalize this reality. Yes, uh, we have tried to destigmatize anxiety, depression, particularly in the church. If that is part of your narrative, this is the place for you to be. But I, I don't want to normalize depression and anxiety and worry and anger and fear. These are real diseases that God does not want for us. So how do we end this? How do we end this series? And then one of you, you know who you are. You sent me an email at the very beginning of this series. And you said, I'm really excited that you're talking about this. I've been waiting for this church to talk about this. And I wanted to share a favorite verse with you. And it was that verse. Psalm 94, 18, 19. That psalm written by David, maybe, maybe not, we're not sure. Either way, the whole theme of this psalm is being overwhelmed. It has a timeless quality about it that notes that the world is messed up and we need God's help. We need God's help because it's overwhelming. We need God to act. In the NRSV, when I thought my foot was slipping, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, you cheer my, your consolations cheer my soul. Or in the NIV, when I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. And I said, there it is. This is how we land the plane. And I've been holding on to this for three weeks. I've been really excited for this Sunday. I've been holding on to this because I want you to look at this verse. When anxiety is great within me, you brought me joy. When I was overwhelmed, God brought joy. What is the antidote to being overwhelmed? It's joy. It's the joy of the Lord. The joy that comes from God. And here's where the text just floored me. 
joy for the psalmist did not demolish worry and anxiety and depression, right? It came when those emotions and states of being were at the absolute heaviest and most overwhelming. That's when joy came. In that awful place, that's where the joy of the Lord showed up and consoled. So let me ask today, what is overwhelming you? What's overwhelming you? Is it worry, anxiety, depression like we preached on the last three weeks? Or is it something else? Is it deep grief or loss? Is it anger? Is it the nightly news with, with shootings again in our city and the political landscape? And, and for me, the fact that depending on, on the day that you watch the news, coffee is either going to give you cancer or cure cancer. It's like, which one is it? What is, what is it that overwhelms you? Whatever it is, here's the word today. You have a choice. You have a choice. So as we close this series today, we say that you can choose joy. And you can do so in the midst of being overwhelmed. I recently read um, the biography of this man, David Fairchild. Uh, Around the turn of the 19th century, Fairchild served in the U.S. Department of Agriculture as the Director of Seeds and Plant Introduction. Doesn't sound like a very interesting title, right? Well, uh, titles can be deceiving. Fairchild was, in fact, a fascinating guy. He was a globetrotting botanist who was responsible for the introduction of over 200,000 exotic plants and crops to the U.S. over a span of three decades. He fundamentally changed the way that we as a nation experience food. When you have lunch today, you are eating something that he brought. I'm I'm almost sure of it. Kale from Croatia and mangoes from India and hops from Bavaria and peaches from China and avocados from Chile, pomegranates from Malta. All of this from this man oftentimes going in undercover to go and grab these things and bring them back here. Not only foods, but other crops too, like Egyptian cotton that you're probably wearing today somewhere. And even cherry blossom trees from Japan which now line the streets of Washington, D.C. But these trees almost didn't. Another character in Fairchild's story is a man named Charles Marlott. He was a boyhood friend of Fairchild, best man in his wedding. And they kind of tracked together, and Marlott became the director of invasive species. And he became a foil to Fairchild. As Fairchild brought in more and more plants and crops and trees and fruit, Marlott would expect them for grubs and and beetles and fungi, anything that could be harmful to existing American crops. And the more that Fairchild brought in, the more stodgy Marlott became. And Fairchild eventually arranged for an entire ship worth of cherry blossom trees as a gift from the Japanese government in 1909 to come straight to Washington, D.C. to be planted. But when Marlott inspected them, he found uh, some microscopic beetles and what was potentially a chestnut blight fungus. And he was fearful of the impact that these unwanted visitors could have on American crops. So he had the entire shipment burned overnight without Fairchild knowing. He was furious with this decision, obviously. And he ultimately arranged for another shipment of trees with more rigorous inspection. But Marlott fought him every single step of the way. These are the ancestors of the trees that you can see in Washington, D.C. in the spring today. What fascinated me in this biography was the stark contrast between these two men. And some of you can see where I'm headed here, right? Marlott was worried, fearful, seeing endless ways in which things could go horribly wrong with every shipment. For him, the mere potential of something invasive 
caused him to try and shut out every, fran- every plant, every fruit, every vegetable. By 1920, he had worn down the U.S. government and Fairchild so much that the inspection protocol was, was so restrictive that there was really no new plants and crops that were brought in. Marlott is portrayed as testy and serially unhappy and paranoid and probably not the kind of guy that you want to sit next to at a dinner party. Fairchild, on the other hand, was exactly the opposite. He was a brilliant botanist. He actually understood invasive species really well. He was a really learned person. But he saw the good of these crops outweighing the possible detriments. He had tasted the full flavors of the world, and and, and he had the wonder to get down on his hands and his knees and dig up the dirt and say, isn't this wonderful? And he figured if we have problems with invasive species, we're going to figure it out. We'll come up with a solution. Think of the upside. It's well worth it. He was a man of joy and wonder from day one. He was joy-filled with the tastes of the world and, and, and the idea of them being available here at home. So you have two men, both looking at the same plants, the same bugs, both brilliantly smart men, and yet they saw totally different things, didn't they? One man full of fear, the other one full of joy and wonder. Part of my question is, where are you headed? (laughs) Now, maybe these men were simply wired differently, right? Maybe Fairchild just had the joyful gene and Marlott had the melancholy gene. And we talked about genetics actually quite a bit in the last few weeks. Um, psychologist Sonia Lubomirsky in her book, The How of Happiness, actually studies um, what makes our general disposition in our lives. You might be surprised by this. Her thesis is that your general disposition is 10% your circumstances, 40% your attitude or what you do with those circumstances, and 50% your genetics. Some of you were handed a genetic code that makes you prone to worry or prone to joy or prone to depression, or prone to peaceability, or prone to anxiety. You didn't ask for it, you just got it. So it's possible that Fairchild and people like him just got the the good end of the genetic pool, right? That could be the case. But let me ask you a question as you look at these numbers. If you had a 50% genetic disposition towards a certain type of disease, would you be comfortable with people saying to you, well, you, because you're 50% genetically disposed to this, you're, you're going to get it. And that's just your genetics. Sorry. No, you wouldn't be comfortable with that. You would want to hear, hey, this is a possible reality. Let's not be ignorant about it. But you are not defined by your genome. You're going to live your life. You're going to make healthy decisions. And if you get this diagnosis, guess what you're going to do? You're going to fight it. You're going to fight it. So when it comes to our mental, emotional health, we can own our genome. We can own the fact that some of us have a steeper hill to climb than others. But I want you to know that your genetics do not define who you are. They don't define who you are. And this is where the Bible is really ahead of its time. Um, We were in Philippians chapter 4 a couple weeks ago where it talks about taking our worries, our anxious thoughts, and converting them into prayers so that God can fill us with his peace. Look at how this text begins. And again, I've been sitting on this for a couple weeks. I'm really excited about it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Twice it says rejoice. Now we think of joy as a state of being. I'm, I'm either joyful or I'm not joyful, right? But you need to know in this text... 
Rejoice is a verb. In fact, it's a present imperative active verb for you grammar snobs. What does that mean? It means that this is a command. Here's the Lars Stromberg translation of Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Practice joy right now. Let me say it again for the people in the back. Practice joy right now. Loose translation. Remember the psalmist. When anxiety was great within me, when it was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Which gets us to that 40% of our attitudes, right, about our circumstances. You, gotta, you have to know, my friends, that joy is something that we do. It's a verb. It's something that we choose. We are not overwhelmed by our circumstances. Those are only 10% of our disposition, right? We are overwhelmed by our emotions tied to our circumstances. That's that 40%. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, anger, restlessness, fear, worry. These are emotions. And we cannot merely change our emotions on the spot. When my head and my heart are spinning, I can't just say, okay, now joy, and voila, I'm joyful. I can't do that. Maybe you can. I don't, I don't think you can. We cannot will an emotion. There's no switch that we can flip for that. We don't have that level of control over our emotions, which causes us to often just give in to those emotions. And if we're, if we're not careful, we can become enslaved by those emotions. I know that many of you know what I'm talking about. While we don't have control over our emotions, and the Bible backs this up, we do have control over our minds. What we think about, what we give attention to, governs our emotions. As John Mark Comer puts it, as a general rule, our emotions follow our thoughts. Actually, from a neurobiological level, feelings and thoughts are virtually indistinguishable, but that is not how we experience them. For instance, just a little exercise. Close your, mind, close your eyes for a second. I want you to think of someone or something that you hate. I know this, ser this sermon's about joy, but just think about that for a second. Think of the wrong that's been done to you, the things that have been, the, the, the words that have been said to you, some, something that you, something or someone that you hate. Okay, open your eyes. If you did that for a minute, what's going to happen to you? What are you going to feel? You're going to be angry. You're going to be stirred up. You're going to be mad. Close your eyes again. I want you to think about your favorite vacation spot in the world. And it's the perfect temperature, whatever your perfect temperature is. If you really love your kids, they're there with you. If you don't love them, they're not with you. How about that? Okay, open your eyes. If you sat there for a minute, what emotions are you going to have? Peace. Contentment. The reality is that our emotions follow our thoughts. If you think about God, his love for you, the joy that he gives, how unthinkably good he is, it changes us. We feel joy. We feel peace. We can't will joy, we can't will emotions, but we can will a thought life in which joy is the inevitable result. 
And that's what Paul is talking about when he commands his readers and us by association to practice joy right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. And this is vitally important because what we give our thought life to has the potential to steer our lives. It has the potential to, to, to create a living hell for us. A prison of thought that drags us down and ensnares us. Or it has the possibility to lead us into the abundant life of the freedom and peace of Jesus Christ. And these tend to be self-perpetuating states of mind. Numerous studies tell us that as we age, we become more set in our ways. Fairchild, he got more joy-filled and wonder-filled. Marlot, he got more paranoid and worried and anxious. Our differentiation from, from our own proclivities and our brain wiring becomes more and more narrow as we go throughout life. I was at our um, Covenant Midwinter Pastors Conference a couple weeks ago, and, and I ended up sitting next to a, a pastor that I love and respect. He's in his late 50s. And as we got going in this conversation, I recognized it was not going in a great direction. He just started to rail on the church and on the denomination and, and on ministry and on our country. And I was so bummed because I was watching this, this downward spiral get deeper and darker and, and more ugly. This was not how this person was 10 years ago. And it broke my heart. That same evening, I, I had dinner with a pastor who's 60, and I saw this person who's getting more humble and more tender and more joyful and more peaceful than I remember him being last year. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm contrasting this beautiful pastor who any of you would be lucky to sit under, and, and, this, and this other colleague whose heart is literally rotting for me to see. One is, I, I venture to say that one is practicing joy in his mind, and the other one's not. The other one's forgotten how to do that. And the obvious question for me is, which one do I want to be? And I know the answer. I know the answer. It's a matter of our mind. Remember, we practice joy in the midst of being overwhelmed. And it usually doesn't lift us out of that mire immediately. It can. God can do that. We have stories of that. But we practice joy in the midst of all that overwhelms us. Bono, lead singer of U2, says this amazing quote, joy is an act of defiance. The world is not going to get less overwhelming, people. So we need to flex our joy muscles in the face of an overwhelming world. We need to learn what it means to practice joy if we're going to keep from being overwhelmed. So what does it mean? What does it mean to practice joy in a really practical way for each and every one of us? So I'm going to close with this. We practice joy two ways. We practice joy with our minds, and we practice joy with our bodies. First, our minds. We practice joy with our minds through many of the things that we talked about in the last few weeks, what we would call sort of the classic spiritual disciplines like prayer and, and reading scripture, holding captive thoughts that are, that are worried or fearful or angry and, and turning those worries into prayers. As we said a couple weeks ago, you need to become a relentless tyrant about your thought life. Now, these are sort of the classic spiritual disciplines. They're the ones we go back to, and they will help you. Um, they will help you. Uh, to, to have joy in your mind. But there are also spiritual disciplines that we don't talk about nearly as much that can help us with that too, that can help our thought life. Um, I would just add music to that list. I invest in vinyl music um, because 
when I fill my mind with music that's really good and it's played on something that sounds good, it leads me to joy. It leads me to joy. It enters my ears, it goes into my mind, and it leads me to joy. The music here at church leads me into joy. That's why worship is so vital. The, the Christian tradition sings in a way that no other major religion does. Why is that? It's because we worship the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was full of joy. And when we worship that person, we experience the joy of the Lord. So there are things that we can do. We can, we can fill our minds with that lead us to joy. But part of that practicing joy with our minds is also keeping out things that are, are notorious joy stealers. Um, is the show that you're currently binging or the movie that you're watching, is it making you scared or anxious? Then stop watching it. If, if, if the things that you are reading just rile you up and get you angry, stop reading those things. Find something else. One of my biggest words of wisdom for what I perceive for an overwhelmed people here is, and I'm just going to say it, a lot of you need to stop watching cable news. Um, and I'm not picking on one or the other. I don't care if it's MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or whatever your favorite political podcast is. I'll just say I have not met many people who are deeply committed to a media outlet that are growing in joy. <laughs> I think they're joy stealers. And that is actually the whole model of how they get you to watch and listen, by the way. So part of practicing joy in your mind is to elect to not fill it with talking heads yelling at each other and preying on your fears. Joying with your mind is putting yourself in such a mindset that joy is the inevitable result of your thoughts. Let me say it again. Joying with your mind is putting yourself in such a mindset that joy is the inevitable result of your thoughts. And then we joy with our bodies. <clears throat> Remember that faith is to be embodied just as Jesus lived out his trust in God, his Father, in his body. So if we want to really practice joy, like Paul commands us to do, we can't do it without getting our bodies involved. Um, I have a few suggestions. Some of these will hit you uh, in, in, in a good way. Some of you probably need all of these combined together. How about sleeping? That's the first one. Take a nap today. If you are someone who is unable to nap, I would love to have a conversation with you because I think you have a joy deficiency. I really do. Sleeping is a way of casting out worry and, and fear and anxiety in our lives because you are literally ceasing from it. The world goes on and you are oblivious because God is in control. Um, I proudly nap every single Friday on my day off and it is one of the most joy-filled experiences I have every week. Really, it is. How about feasting? The spiritual discipline of feasting, something we do with our bodies. Practice joy by eating good food. Now, some of you are super disciplined with your body, which is great, but it's not great if it steals your joy. I honestly think some of you just need to go to Fuller House and get, like, the biggest, greasiest burger you can get today with animal fries on the side. They're really good. Feasting is a spiritual discipline. Notice that the feast that Jesus leaves with us, which we're going to commemorate next week, First Sunday of the month. He doesn't leave us cauliflower and water, does he? What does he leave us? Bread and wine. Pretty good, right? Pretty good. That should tell us something. And when we feast, we should do it with other people. Have you ever seen a person eating alone in their car in a parking lot? Would you ever mistake that person for a joyful person? <laughs> I, I mean, I've done it. I've never felt joyful when I do that, and I always feel kind of gross afterwards, right? 
Instead, eat good food that's good for you with good people. You can practice joy with your bodies by exercising, using the body that God gave you. Um, I know it's winter in Chicago, but how awesome is the weather today? If you don't go outside today, you are missing out on an opportunity for joy, right? You don't even have to bundle up today. Go out and, and feel some sunshine on your, on your skin and go and walk. Exercise your body. Go to, K, go to Catherine Leggy. Go to Bemis Woods. Go somewhere where you can go and, and use your body. Exercise. Enjoy. Enjoy a Sabbath. That's one of the most important things you can do with your body. John Mark Comer calls that a day of pleasure stacking, where you just take all the things that you like and try and fill the day with it, where our whole goal is to delight with our minds and our bodies. Another way that we can joy with our bodies is to be in touch with our emotions, laughter, tears. I met with a counselor last year because I was in a season of being really overwhelmed, heavy season, and and after three sessions together, he said, Lars, I figured out what you need to do. Here's your homework. I want you to go home. I want you to go to the library. And I want you to rent every single tearjerker movie that you can find and, and some movies that make you laugh. And I want you to watch all of them. I want you to watch as many of them as you can. And I did. I, I went and watched Coco with my daughter. I mean, come on, right? I mean, I wept like a baby. That is, that is part of joying with our bodies. And why did the counselor tell me to do that? He said, I want you to feel again. I want you to feel again. I watched Raising Arizona, my favorite movie. I laughed my head off. That is joying with our bodies. Get your body to church every Sunday that you can. This is a place that's filled with the joy of the Lord. And what we do here and, and the worship that we have here rubs off on our lives and we become more joyful people. I could go on. There are many other things that we could talk about. But, but what's the common thread of all of these things? The inevitable outcome of all these activities, mind and body, is joy. Move your mind and your body into joy. Richard Foster, the master of spiritual disciplines himself, talks about the spiritual discipline of joy when he says this, God has established a created order full of excellent and good things, and it follows naturally that if we think on these things, we will be happy. That's God's appointed way to joy. If we think that we're going to have joy only by praying and singing psalms, then we are disillusioned. But if we fill our lives with simple good things and constantly thank God for them, we will know joy. And what about our problems? What about what overwhelms us? When we determine to dwell on the good and excellent things in life, our lives will be so full of those things that they will tend to swallow our problems. Friends, joy won't just happen to us. We have to choose it and choose it again and choose it again in the very face of an overwhelming world and an overwhelming life. Are you worried? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you angry? Are you grieving? Are you fearful? Are you exhausted today? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, choose joy right now. Don't wait until you're not overwhelmed. That may never happen. While you are overwhelmed, let the joy of the Lord console you. Choose joy. This is the way of Jesus Christ, and it's the way to resist that which would seek to overwhelm us. Thanks be to God, the most joyful being that has ever existed, and the giver of joy. Amen. I'm going to invite the